title of my message this morning, let's go ahead and jump into it, um, is what's love got to do with it? Got a few laughs, all right. I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, my wife looked down at, the, at my notes while I was sitting next to her and I was getting them pulled up and everything ready on my tablet. And she goes, oh, I love that song. And she goes, you're not going to sing it, are you? <laughs> I said, no. And she goes, that's a good choice. So, um, no, but we hear that, right? And everybody hears that song and it instantly starts to play with their head. But it's an interesting question, I think, when we, when we begin to think about our Christian lives and our Christian walks and things that God would have us do is what has love got to do with it? And I want to introduce a problem to you. I'm going to read a scripture. And if you're like me, sometimes you read this scripture and it's scary. So let's just let's go ahead and read it. It's Matthew chapter 7. Uh, verse 21 through 23, and it says this, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Anybody like me ever read that verse and it just kind of, it makes you nervous? Am I the only one? I heard a couple, mm -hmm. you can raise your hand. We're a Pentecostal church, I don't know if you know that. Amens are okay, hand raising's okay. I mean, you can wave a tissue at me, I might just think you have to blow your nose, but that's okay. But yeah, anybody else out there, the verse scares them a few times, thank you, up in the balcony, one person. Yeah, it's a sobering verse when you read that. And the idea for this message kind of came to me, I was in a Bible study with some guys that I do on Friday mornings, and uh, we were there. And one of the guys, I don't remember how, but somehow we got on to this verse and we were talking about it. And he goes, you know, that's really scary. And I was like, it can, I said, it can be a scary thought. And he's like, well, I mean, he goes, they're like casting out demons. He's like, I've never done that. And they're not making it. So what's, you know, like, what about me? And that's generally how we read this verse. We're like, oh, my goodness. These guys are like the cream of the crop preacher guys, right? I mean, casting out demons, prophesying, big ministries, doing all this kind of stuff. And God's like, yeah, I don't know who you are, though. So you need to go in. And you're like, if God doesn't know their name, why in the world would he know mine? Right? You guys tracking with me? You, quiet this, you guys are quiet this morning? You know there's coffee in the lobby. Right? After church now, because now I've started. So after. But there's coffee in the lobby. You can get Wake up. Let's have a little fun. Yeah. No. It's so weird. I'm like, I've not done some of this stuff before, right? Like, how is God going to know me in that? So let's take a look at another scripture where Jesus has a similar conversation where he's relating a similar thing. And let's take a look at what he says here. This is Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. And Jesus is talking about when he returns. He says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. 
Then the king will turn to those on his left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then I will reply, or they will reply, not I, hopefully not I. Here's a slip you don't want to make, right? All right. Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of my brothers and sisters, you are refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Okay. Anybody else feel a little sobered up yet? A little sobering, right? It's an interesting thing. Christ is, he's breaking people apart based on their actions, isn't he? Based on how they live their life, he's separating these people. Well, in some ways we're going, but wait, I thought there was, there was no, act. my salvation wasn't based on my actions, right? Well, yes, that is true. But our love for people is the determining factor in our love for a long time ago in America, we forgot that. We hear stories of guys like David Wilkerson who are willing to do anything to reach these people, right? And we don't always have that same mentality, right? We drive around and we see tent encampments and everything else. And we begin to talk about how frustrated it makes us that we have to live in some of these things or live around this stuff. I'm guilty of that. We begin to look at certain things in society and we begin to be upset or frustrated or angry about these kinds of things. And yet at the same time, Jesus is saying, listen, you are not showing love to the very people that I called you to show love to. Love for people is a determining factor. We're going to look at one more verse in Matthew here real quick before we, before we have a little more breakdown of everything. It says, it's Matthew 22. Uh, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with this reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in the religious law, tried to trap him with this question. It's funny that they continuously try to trap Jesus with questions. Like you would think that after he continuously beat you in a, in a battle of wits, you would stop, right? You ever been in a battle of wits with somebody and they came unarmed? Yeah? Some of you, you'll get that a little bit later. And... Um, <laughs> We can have a battle of wits. Um, okay. <laughs> it says, one of the, okay, it says, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. I remember the first time I really read that and I really began to think about it. And you begin to go through even the Ten Commandments, Right? And we think you could almost break the Ten Commandments into love God, first portion, right? No other gods before me, no graven images, don't take his name in vain, honor the Sabbath. And then what? Then you get into loving people. Honor your mom and dad, don't kill anyone, don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, right? Don't covet. All these things that cause us to dislike people. Every command, everything in the Bible hangs on one of two things. 
to make sure that you love God or that you love people. And I'm going to put it to you this way. I would, I would propose that it is impossible to love God without loving people. That if you don't love people, you cannot love God. And if this morning that's a scary thought for you, good, it should be. It is impossible to love God without a love for people. And we're commanded to love, which means, guess what? It's a choice. Because if love was just a feeling, and I love talking about this in youth because I always have a youth kid who wants to argue with me. No, no, it's a feeling. No, that's just, I use the word from the Bambi movie, that's just being Twitter-pated, right? I like using that word because, well, nowadays no kid's even seen Bambi. They're like, what's that? It's the movie where they made hunters bad, right? Okay. They shot the deer. Yeah, it was probably delicious, too. Um, Okay, so. Deer's good. I'm just going to say. Had it. But I love talking about that with youth because they're like, well, I don't understand how those just because teenagers are so ruled by their emotions. It's so much fun. And if you really ever want to have fun with a teenager, either talk talk to them about something they're excited about and either poke holes in it and watch them get all flustered and fired up. Or talk to them about why they like it and watch the excitement in their voice as they begin to talk about things. Right? And depending on what it is, you can have a lot of fun with it. And I've learned some stuff now being back in youth. Okay? And I'm going to not use names so I won't embarrass any of my students too bad. But did you know I now know what panda dunks are? See? And all the people are like, what is that? It's black and white Nikes. I had no idea. They call them panda dunks. I was going to go get some, some orange ones and call them Tiger Slams. I don't know if that works. Um, but no, you know. But I've learned about a ton of other stuff. I've learned a lot about dogs, more than I knew since I've been back in youth. Because we have a student who's super into that, right? I live with one of my other students who's really into video games and music and all that kind of stuff, so I've learned a ton about that. I know more now about jazz music than I ever did before because my son is super huge into jazz music. And that's awesome. They have passions. They have things that they love. Right? Even in ways that they still chose to love those things. They may not realize it because they liked it, but they still chose to love it. We choose to love things. Even that person. You may look at them and think, oh, they're attractive. But you choose to love them. Love is a choice. That's why you can be commanded to do it. If, you could, if it was just how you felt, if love was just a feeling, if it was just something that happened to you, God wouldn't command you to do it because we can't command our feelings. Right? If you tell a joke and I think it's funny, I'm going to laugh. If I tell a joke, I promise you, my wife and kids' eyes are going to roll because I've settled into dad jokes now. That's where I live. Do you know when a joke becomes a dad joke? When it's apparent. See, I heard there was moaning and groaning out there. That's where I live now, right? It's okay. I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm totally happy with my life the, with the way it is right there. But we are commanded to love. We're commanded to love. Those of you who are married understand that love is a choice because there are days you wake up and you look at your spouse and you think, oh, I love you. And there are days you wake up and look at them and you're like, today I choose to love you. 
And I'm going to tell you, it, some people are like, oh, what did you do the day before? Nothing that made them mad, right? There are just some days you don't have the feelings, the little butterflies in the stomach and everything else. Why do you think it always is, is that you always hear married couples, oh, I wish we could go back to the way it was in the beginning when everything was new and exciting and got butterflies and all that kind of stuff. It's because it was new, Right? It's the same reason when you get a brand new car, you make sure people wipe their shoes and you don't eat or drink anything in your new car. Unless my family gets a new car and then you go to an animal drive, those animal drive-thrus and let buffalo stick their heads in your brand new car. <laughs> and you choose to love your wife because she wanted to go to the thing and bring the brand new car where the buffalo were going to stick their heads in your brand new car. Now, all right. But love is a choice. And those of us who are married, we understand that because there are times we looked at our spouse. Because of nothing they did wrong and just said, today, I don't necessarily feel the emotion of this. But I'm choosing to love you because I made a promise to you. To love, honor, and cherish you. When the same way, when we accepted Christ, right? When we asked him into our lives, when we became Christians, we said, God, from this day forward, I promise to love you. And I promise to love people. So I'm going to tell you, at this point now, then your feelings about how you feel about people are really no longer relevant to the situation. And if you think, well, Pastor Josh, that's really, really awful. Show me in the Bible where God ever took somebody's feelings about a situation into account when he called them to do something. Right? Anyone? Like... David, you're anointed king. Oh, by the way, the king's going to try to kill you, and a bunch of other people are going to try to kill you. How do you feel about that? I'm sure David would have been like, I don't feel so great about that. Right? Gideon, you are going to lead the people. God, I'm the least in my family, in the least tribe in this, and God shows up, calls him a mighty man of valor while he's hiding. The dude's cowering, threshing grain, hiding somewhere, and God calls him a mighty man of valor. Ask Gideon how he felt about that. Gideon tries to talk his way out of it. God, you really don't want to use me? Moses, when God called Moses, Moses tried to talk his way out of it. God, I can't speak very well. I can't do this. God, fine, Aaron will speak for you. You're going to do this. Because your feelings on it are always irrelevant. Because love is not a feeling. Right? Steve Camp wrote a great song. Yep. And if you were preaching, you'd start singing it. I'm not going to. <laughs> But it's a great song if you have iTunes or, you know, Apple Music, any of those, Amazon Music, anything, look it up. Great song. It's, it's rocky. And when you, and if you listen to today, just picture Pastor singing it because I promise you. He went, I was going through my notes this morning and I was like, Pastor would sing this right here. Because um, I knew, right? What's the song? The song is Love's Not a Feeling. I'm going to tell you guys this. The quality of your ministry is far more important than the quantity of your ministry. You could speak to a group of 10,000 people, give an altar call, they could all respond and then go out the next day and forget everything, every commitment they made at that altar. Or you could live your life and lead three people to Christ who are going to make it to heaven with you. Which one do you think had a more important ministry? I would actually put it to you that they both had an important ministry if they were both doing it, doing what God told them to do. But I think sometimes we read some of these scriptures and we're like, oh, but those, 
if they cast out demons, that doesn't call everyone to that. God calls us to live our lives, to love people, to be in people's lives. You can't just love people sitting in a chair at church on Sunday morning. Loving people really starts when we leave here. Loving people starts when you leave here today and you go out to eat and your waitress who's having a rough day is a little short with you. How do you respond? Loving people comes when we care more about somebody finding Jesus than we do getting whatever it is that we want out of the situation. Do we love people? Do you really love people? Because it's funny. I always hear this all the time, right? In church, we say, oh, well, I love, I, people always tell me, well, I, you know, I love people, but. Anybody heard anybody say that? Well, I love people, but. people, but they get on my nerves. Yeah, they get on mine too. I love people, but I just, I don't like the things that they do. Yeah, well, they probably don't like the things that you do all the time either. You know, and we try to say, here's the thing, if you have to put a bunch of buts behind why you love people, but you don't show it, do you really love people? Imagine if I was like, well, I love my wife, but I'm going to forget our anniversary every year and her birthday, and I'm never going to take her out on a date. I love her, but I'm just too busy to spend any real time with her. Most of you'd be like, does he really love you? Like, I mean, really? Right? See, because if we loved people, and we know what hell is, we would do more to try and influence people away from that. The sobering thing about these verses is, these people who Jesus is talking to in this situation think they've escaped it, Right? They think, hey, I'm good. I go to church on Sunday. I sing. I even clap on beat. I do better than Pastor Josh. I know when to raise my hands. I know, man, I, I give in the offering plate when it comes by. I, I look good. And Jesus is going, yeah, but you see all of these things that you didn't do over here? And notice the people he commends for their walk, for their life, are people who did things for the ones that the world would consider insignificant. The ones the world would look away from. He's saying, look, you probably did most of this stuff and never got any credit for it. As you did to the least of these. The least, the ones that nobody else wanted to deal with. As you did to the least of these, you were doing it as unto me. So many times in scripture, Jesus is like, 
Listen, when you give in a way that everyone sees what you're doing, you already got the reward for it, right? Because again, when we give, when we serve, when we do anything that we're called to do in here with the, with the idea that people will see me and think I'm more spiritual or I'm a good Christian or I'm anything else, Jesus is like, you already got the reward for it. And let me tell you what, trying to be a good Christian so that everyone around you will think you're a good Christian is ridiculous because when you get to heaven and you're standing before God, you're not going to be judged by a jury of your peers. Your judge and jury is perfect. Not a bunch of other people who can understand that you screwed up. It's a sobering thought. James 1, 2 through 7 says, Pure and undefiled religion, or pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father, means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Notice Jesus's, or the Bible is James actually, but James's definition of how he says God defines religion, really living out your faith is taking care of those people who could not take care of themselves. Especially in this culture, they had very few things. It was the church's role to take care of widows because they had no way to make money. They had no source of income. They had none of these things coming in. Orphans the same way. These kids didn't have that. And they were saying, listen, if you really want to do well in being religious or in doing the thing that's right, you take care of those people in your society and in your culture that can't take care of themselves. You help them. You do the things that you need to do. You look after them. Friends, I hope this challenges you the same way it challenges me because as soon as I start to really think about these scriptures, I start to think about myself on a daily basis and how I interact with people and my thoughts and everything else. Because I can be just like everyone else and get frustrated at the state of the world. I can get frustrated at the fact that there's all this kind of stuff going on around me and, you know, all, you know, you talk about the homeless thing. There's a lot of homeless here in Washington State. We see it everywhere, right? And we can find ourselves frustrated by it. Or we can find ourselves moved to prayer by it. I'm going to tell you, society is constantly pointing. It's our culture's idea to point to the government and say, fix the problem. How do we fix this? Friends, I don't think that that should ever be the case. I think it should be the church's job to figure out how to help the poor and the destitute and those who are way out. Now, I'm not saying that our church can go and support all of them. Please understand, I'm not. that's not what I'm saying. And how many of you guys have heard, do for one what you wish you could do for all? can't support all of them. I can't even help all of the students in Clover Park schools that need help. But you know what? We helped 80 of them this year. And even as we're doing it, you're sitting there and you're like, we provided them one meal or enough that they could maybe stretch it out for a few and all this kind of stuff. I wish it could be more, right? And by the grace of God, maybe one day it will be. Maybe we will be able to do more than that. My point is, if when we look out at the problems in our society and our reaction is, then the first place we need to look and get right is right here. It's in the mirror. 
preaching to myself. My wife will tell you, we have had multiple conversations. We go, let's just get out of this state. Let's just go. She's like, no. And I'd love this to tell you it's because she's this spiritual stalwart who's like, there's broken people here that need help. She doesn't want to leave them out right now. Um, <laughs> not that she's not a spiritual stalwart, okay? Don't, don't get me wrong. But I'm just telling you, that was, that's not how the, the conversation went that time. But we have got to begin to think differently about our interactions with people. We have got to begin to think differently about so many other things. Because you know what? I've read the book, The World Doesn't Get Better Before the End. Right? It doesn't say, and everything was great, and everything was grand, and everyone was serving Jesus, and then he returned. No. The world's going to hell in a handbasket, and then he comes back. And sometimes I think that, that we are so caught up in like, well, we're going to know when it gets to like that certain point where it's like so bad that everybody's like, run and hide. The Bible says, no, as it was in the days of Moses, people were getting married and having kids the day before the flood came. Does that mean that it's going to spin on until he comes back? And how many of you right now know someone that if that trumpet were to go off right now, wouldn't be with you? Our love for them should impact some things. Should impact some conversations. And so often we're like, but it's going to be awkward. That's an uncomfortable conversation. Yes, it is. But how many of you know if you love somebody, you're willing to have those conversations? Right? Parents, we love our children. We discipline them. Right? It's easier to not discipline a child for a while. you have to deal with the repercussions of an adult child who's never been disciplined and I say adult child because if you were never disciplined until you become an adult you're an adult child because that's how they act it's easier to not discipline a kid it's easier to let them do whatever they're going to do but love steps in and says I'm not doing you any favors by letting you get away with this in the same way when God corrects us, it's not fun. But God's saying, I love you and I'm not doing you any favors by letting you get away with this. It's why he gave us scriptures like this. I love you. I don't ever want you to be the person that stands in front of me and he says, I don't know who you are. So I'm going to give you uncomfortable scriptures like this to cause you to examine your life. To cause you to examine your look out at things and say, do I love people or do I like the thought of loving people? Because if I say I love people, then I feel better about myself. When in actuality, if I was put on trial for loving people, the outcome might not be so great. That's why the famous, there was a famous atheist who said, they asked him, do you get upset when Christians share their faith with you? And he says, no. Because if they really believe in the hell they say they believe in, they must really hate me to not share their faith with me. just letting them, you know, they're just, they're living their best life and whatever. No! 
They might be living their best life. Is that really what you want for them in the scope of eternity? Is that their best life was right now? I'm not living my best life now. My best life's coming. And I'm going to get to do it for eternity. Where I'm not going to be, where our bodies aren't going to get old. And food has no calories. It's, it's, you kind of have to read between the lines, but I think it's in there. There's going to be food. There's a marriage supper of the Lamb. God's big into feasting, right? There's going to be food in heaven. Praise God. But I'm looking forward to the day when nothing wears out on us. Where everything is wonderful and everything is perfect. And I'm so looking forward to the day that I get to spend every moment in that feeling of experiencing the presence of God around me like we do at the altar sometimes. You ever walk away from that and you're like, it's just, you're like, this is just amazing. That's heaven. Constantly. In God's presence. I'm going to tell you, friends, we only get there by loving people. Not because our love for people saves us, but because it is an indicator that we are living a transformed life. Because humans are by nature selfish. We're by nature selfish beings. You guys have heard me say this before and I preach. We never teach a little kid to say no or mine. We teach them how to share. Right? You need to share these things. Right? We don't have to teach them to scream, get out of my room. Now, if you only had one kid, that's a really weird thing for them to be screaming by themselves. But, um, you know. But we don't, we don't teach them that. We have to teach them. You need to share. You need to learn to take turns. You need to do all this kind of stuff, right? It's one of the reasons why we put our kids in sports and we let them play team sports so they learn how to work together. Because doing things by yourself, doing it your own way, not wanting to share, those are all normal, human, selfish things. We're selfish by nature. Our sinful nature thinks about me, myself, and I, and what is best for me, and I'm looking out for myself, and what is the best thing that can help me in this situation? How can I come off looking the best? That's why when you look at a photo, you look to see how you look in it. You don't care how anyone else looks. If you look good, the photo goes online, right? No, we care about us in our sinful state. That's what happens. Jesus was the only one who didn't deal with that. He didn't have a sin nature. That's why he could selflessly die on the cross for us. So then when we die and are raised to life with Christ, when we enter into salvation and we do that, we no longer, we're no longer slaves to sin. That means that our sin nature doesn't have complete control over us anymore. Now, we can still choose to do it. And it's still a fight to, to fight that selfish nature and to not want what I want. But we can do it. And when we make those decisions and we say, I choose to love God with every part of who I am. Choose to love my neighbor. Look how loving this I am. I choose to want what's best for them. I choose to.
to want these things. You read in 1 Corinthians 13, right, the love chapter I know on Wednesday nights, they've been going through this and all those different little attributes and things of love that are in there. Those aren't just, those don't just apply to romantic relationships. Every time we say love, our mind instantly goes to romantic relationships and love is so much more than that. One of my favorite things in there is love keeps no record of wrongs. Love isn't concerned with how many times somebody has wronged you. Love is concerned. Are you still? Are you still? My hand is still out. I'm still here. I understand this topic isn't comfortable. And normally we talk about love and we're like, oh, this is wonderful. Isn't this great? No, that's Twitter baiting again. Love is deep. Love hurts. Because when we choose to love people, it means we don't choose to love them to a certain point and then walk away. We choose to love them forever. We're choosing. I choose to love you, which means when you spit in my face and walk away and tell me you want nothing to do with that God that I serve, I still love you and I'm still going to tell you again because I care about you. Not, no. Now, I'm not telling you to be pushy and over the top and, like, every conversation you have has to be, like, this uber-Christian thing, right? Like, when you, if you first come to their house and you sit down at the table and, are you thirsty? Oh, I'm thirsty for the Lord. I heard a comedian tell that joke one time. That's not mine. Just so we're clear for copyright issues. Um, right? I'm not saying it has to be that. But what I'm saying is that you show your love for God to them by the way you live. What does the Bible say? It says, let your good deeds shine out so that all men might see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven because it's not about me getting the credit. It's about me saying, I do this for him. This is all about him. And when we do that and we continuously show people what happens, might our church look like if we loved people? I mean, we really loved people. We were willing to get into the muck and into the mire, and we were willing to wade through the difficult stuff all the time. This isn't a statistic they've ever come up with or they've ever like put out there. I'm pretty sure Barnum has never pulled this, but I would really be willing to bet that the majority of pastors leave the ministry because they love people so much and they just got so burned out with the rejection. I can understand that. I heard a pastor, he was, it was a popular video, it was floating around YouTube for a while, and some other things he said, I'm going on sabbatical because he said, I realized that I have come to a point where I am working for God but I don't feel like we have much of a relationship. He was understanding this. I'm doing the work, but I don't feel like I have, like I love God right now, and I need to get back to that. He's coming to that realization. If I'm not careful, I'm going to be this person standing up, because he had a big church. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be this guy standing up there going, God, I did all this stuff, and God's like, yeah, but I don't know who you are. Yeah. 
desperately want revival. But I think sometimes when we say revival, we mean something else. We say, we want revival and we want a big altar scene. Right? Not that that's bad. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But true revival, bringing back to life, right? To revive, to bring back to life, to reinvigorate something, should reinvigorate our love for people. Listen, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, we always go and we love the list of things that love is. Do you guys remember the first part when it's talking about if I could speak in all the languages of earth and of angels, speaking in tongues, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Paul says, all the displays, all of the things that we think of when we think of revival, and they're not wrong, they're not bad, but he's saying all of that, having the ability to prophesy and to understand all of God's knowledge, it doesn't matter how clearly I can articulate scripture, how well I can break down the proper hermeneutics of the verse and everything else, and how well I can, you know, my theology is and my eschatology is and everything else and all the other ologies and all of that other good stuff, it doesn't matter how good that is, if I don't love you who are sitting in those seats, I'm nothing. I might as well be up here talking about anything else. I'm just flapping my gums. I'm just making air. If we seek the altar experience for the altar experience sake, then what's the point? We don't want revival so that we can say, oh, hey, look how cool and hopping and buzzing our church is. Because when we have that perspective, we're like, God, why don't you send revival? And he's like, because you don't really want it. Oh, but if we have revival, we go into those worship sets that go on for three and four hours. I would just play the music that long. You don't love people. You don't love God. If you don't want those things to happen so that your neighbor can come in here and experience the radical life-transforming power of the Holy Spirit, what's the point of it all? If we can understand nothing nothing today. It's that if we don't love people, we've missed everything. And loving people is hard. People are not overwhelmingly lovable. It's the truth, right? I'm not overwhelmingly lovable. Ask my family. They'll tell you. I have my pokey places, right? I have bad days. I can, I can wake up in a bad mood. And I'll tell you what's worse. I can choose to stay in that bad mood all day because I want to. We have to love people. That's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't run from people who were yucky. 
hide from people that were scary or difficult. That's what we preached last week about the ten lepers. Jesus didn't run away from people with leprosy. Most people did. Do you understand? Lepers had to walk through the street yelling, unclean, unclean, so the people would get away from them. They had no idea how germs and things were spread back then. They had no idea how people got leprosy. They were afraid to be near them. Made them all go live in colonies. What did Jesus do? He walked up to them. He talked to them. Jesus stopped and talked to other people in their culture who were disabled, people who were blind, people who had all these other issues, when constantly in their society they were considered pariahs because they thought either they sinned or their parents did. They even asked Jesus that question. Jesus, who sinned to make this guy blind? Was it him or his parents? And Jesus like, you have no idea what you're talking about. This man was born blind so the power of God could be made evident through his life, and he heals the guy. didn't worry about what was culturally acceptable. Well, the Pharisees' biggest complaint with him was that he ate and drank with sinners. Jesus, you're around all those people who are eating and drinking. Remember when he was at the Pharisee's house and the lady came in and she broke the oil over him and she was cleaning him with her tears and all that and was kissing his feet? You know what the, the Pharisee said? Oh, if he knew what kind of woman was touching him, he would not be allowed at that. I just want to know how the guy knew who she was, but that's another issue. And how she could get all the way into his house without anybody stopping her. It's just a question. The Bible doesn't say, just a thought. But the point was, Jesus knew exactly what kind of woman she was. He wasn't put off by that at all. Why? Because he loved her. The woman at the well. He knew her whole story because he told everybody. He loved her. Jesus associated with Samaritans. Why? Because he loved them. For a Jew to associate with a Samaritan, that was about the worst thing you could do. And he didn't care. Our love for people. When we truly adopt that love for people, that love for people that God has, because we become more and more like Christ, to adopt that love for him that's when things change I would honestly tell you that the churches that do the most in their communities and the most in the world and the most that are the most effective are the churches that love people the most and I'm going to tell you right now in a lot of ways it doesn't matter how much me, Pastor Larry, Pastor Pete Miss Amy doesn't matter how much we love people you guys who are sitting in the seats don't love people too stay just like this. It's true. And I'm willing to guess that most non-Christians don't really care how good of a preacher your pastor is. Or how good your worship band is. They've got it on iTunes. They've seen God working through you. How when they were in a difficult spot, you were the first one there. Well, you weren't the first one there. But when you told them, if there's anything you need, you really meant it. And how when you helped them, 
look good. But you didn't know him. Because we can tell. Right? We know. When someone's doing something to, you know, put another feather in their cap or something like that. Or they're doing it just because they simply want to help you out. I have a friend, when we moved from our house to the one we're in now, you know, you ask everybody if they can help you move. And we had a lot of people help us move. I'm not saying they didn't love us, but I had one friend who stayed with me. I dropped him off at his house at 1220 in the morning. Because he had a whole bunch of stuff going on. He stayed with me. He helped me do everything. That's love, right? Long after even my family had gone home. My friend was there helping me out. That's love. What else is love? When that person who knows you're a Christian and their life is getting rough and they come to you and you don't tell them I told you so. someone asks you the question how could God love someone like me and you can honestly answer because he loves someone like me that changes it you want to know why Paul was such an excellent apostle because what did he say he said this he goes this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it I am the chief of sinners right Christ, Jesus Christ died for me and I'm a sinner, and I'm the worst of them all. That was Paul's thought. And when we begin to have that perspective of, oh, I'm like, I'm, I'm bad, right? I'm the worst one. And his blood still covered my sins. I'm going to tell you what, it'll change your perspective on other people. When we really understand grace, man, it changes our perspective on others.
something other than it kind of helps you push out everything else. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind? And then the question that follows that is, how do you do that? How do you personally 